On one occasion, a lawyer came to Jesus asking a legal question related to the law. What is the greatest commandment? Perhaps you remember Jesus' response in Mark chapter 12 was the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It is really the summary of all of man's responsibility before God is to love God. And yet, it was indeed the greatest sin of God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, if you remember Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2, the prophet says, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. God said to Israel, I remember when you loved me, when I, when I first plucked you out of Egypt, and you were in the desert wanderings. And then in Jeremiah 2.5, it says, thus, the, thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. And Jeremiah 12 or 2.12 says, Be appalled, O heavens, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for them cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The great tragedy of ancient Israel is that she turned away from loving God to devote herself to idolatry. In fact, that term that we often speak of, backsliding, it's a term that was often used, at least in the King James Version of the Old Testament, uh, to speak of Israel, their their turnings away, or or, uh, some of the contemporary translation call it their apostasy, that there were seasons in which they would turn away from the Lord. It was also... The great sin of one of the New Testament churches that Jesus himself speaks to. Remember it was the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4 where Jesus says, But this I have against you, you have left your first love. So lack of love for God was one of the great problems of the Old Testament people of God. was one of the sins of the church at Ephesus and can be often one of our besetting sins. A couple of weeks ago, this was, it was supposed to be a two-part message and again got interrupted by sickness and then a missionary speaking, but this is, this is the second part of uh, the, this, this message on our spiritual fitness and how to assess where we're at with our relationship with the Lord and how to put in a plan of action to grow in our relationship with the Lord. And perhaps you remember that message from several weeks ago. Uh, I, I mentioned there's four symptoms of spiritual weakness, spiritual atrophy, one is an indifference to the Word of God. When, when you're indifferent to reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, uh, when you're indifferent to the ministry of the Word of God, it's, it's not a good sign of spiritual health. When a person is lacking an appetite for food, which for me is like almost never, uh, it's not a good sign of health, right? You need to eat. When a person also is indifferent towards sin, they've become accustomed to sin, they've made a truce with sin, they no longer have a tender conscience that that becomes broken and sorrowful over sin because you've sinned against the Lord. That's another sign of, of spiritual weakness and being out of shape. 
but also indifference to the people of God. When, when there's no longer delight to be around God's people and, and to be with them and to have fellowship and, and to have that camaraderie of spirit. Yes, even Browns fans and Steelers fans can come together in the body of Christ and enjoy fellowship with one another because there are truths that transcend favorite sports affiliations. And then also an indifference to Christ, an indifference to the triune God when, when your heart is cold towards the Lord. And, and it's really this last symptom that I want to kind of zero in on this, mor- this morning because it's really the root of all of our problems and solutions really in the Christian life is our love for Christ, our love for the triune God. When that's not going well, then everything else in our Christian life is not going well. You want to be a better husband? Love Jesus more and you'll be a better husband. You want to be a better wife? You want to be a better son or daughter? You want to be a better friend? You want to be a better employee? Love Jesus more and almost certainly you'll be a better employee. So let me this morning give you some cautions that are evidences of a declining love for the Lord. So these, again, are some symptoms of a waning love for the Lord, and then we're going to also look at the cause, and then we're going to look at the cure. So some cautions of declining love. Is God less desirable to you than he was before? You know, often in the Christian life, it's, it's, it's often how it goes when it comes to human relationships. When, you know, perhaps you can remember if you are married, the time when you first started dating and the excitement that was in the air. And, and then sometimes that excitement kind of dwindles a little bit. And, and even sometimes in the context of a marriage relationship, when sin comes between two partners, that, that relationship can grow cold. You think back even to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, we we get an inkling of the fellowship (coughs) that existed between Adam and Eve and their creator when it says that they walked with God in the cool of the day. That there was this fellowship, this relationship, this love relationship that existed between Adam and Eve and their God And then you remember what immediately happened once sin interrupted that relationship when they defied what God had told them that they are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Immediately there was distance in their relationship. So that no longer is there this picture of Adam and Eve walking with their God, but now they're running from their God. They're hiding from him. They're relating to God, not as a child relates to their father, but as a slave relates to its master. And really, we we get this. Think of any of your human relationships, whether it's marriage, friendship, sibling relationships, friendships, whatever, any kind of human relationship When sin comes between that relationship, the love grows cold. There's a change in that relationship. And if you are going to get back to a good relationship with that person, things need to change. Things need to change. Octavius Winslow in his book, I think it's entitled Spiritual Declensions. I'll quote heavily from this book throughout this message. He says, When God becomes less an object of fervent desire, holy delight, and frequent contemplations, we may suspect a declension of divine love in the soul. Our spiritual views of God, Our spiritual and constant delight in him will be materially affected by the state of our spiritual affections. If the mind grows earthly, carnal, and selfish, 
dark and gloomy shadows will gather around the character and glory of God. He's putting his finger on the reality of assessing whether our relationship with God has grown cold, whether our desire for him has grown weak. Think of David as he writes Psalm 63. As he's going through a difficult time in his life, probably running from his son Absalom, he writes Psalm 63 and he cries out, You are my God. I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's likening his thirst and hunger for God to like being in a desert that's dry and weary and he knows he needs God just like a thirsty man needs water. And then he recalls his time with the Lord. He says, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And then he says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. He decides to feast upon the loving kindness, God's faithful love, so that his heart would be warmed in praise towards the Lord. And so, friend, take inventory this morning. Has your love for the Lord been dwindling? Has it been growing cold? Is there an indifference that has come between you and your God? That's a caution that you are not in a state of spiritual fitness. You're in a state of atrophy and weakness, declension. And you need to get back on the road to spiritual health. That's one caution. Another caution, I've alluded to it already. I'll mention it explicitly. Viewing God as a master and not a father. Viewing God as a master and not a father. Do you view God like maybe the same way you view a police officer doing an interrogation or an inspection of your vehicle, looking for something, trying to find some illegal activity? Is that your view of God, that God is this this heavenly law enforcer and he's scrutinizing your life and and, and because of that you have hard thoughts of God? I mean, everybody slows down when they see the black and white car, right? Friend, if, if that's your view of God... Viewing him like a judge, like a master, like a law enforcer, rather than a father, then you have hard thoughts of God. Because that's one of the dramatic shifts that takes place in the life of a believer when he's first converted, that he, he, he now experiences a different kind of fear of the Lord, not merely a slavish fear where he relates to God as a judge, but now, because he's adopted into the family of God, now he relates to God as Father because he knows he's accepted in the family, that he's forgiven of all of his sins and that he has the approbation and affection and love of his Father. And this can tend to lead one into a kind of performance-based Christianity. And you may even be doing those things that are right in the Christian life. You know, I read my Bible, I go to church, but but it's just kind of a checklist so that you can win God's smile because you know he's inspecting your vehicle and you don't want him to find any dirt on you. But also somewhat related to this is doubts concerning the goodness of God. Oh, what, before I move on from there, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16 We looked at this verse some weeks ago. It says, For we have 
not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you get that? We, as believers, we haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. We don't, we don't have the slavish fear of the Lord, but, but because we're in the family, we now relate to God as adopted children. But when, when our hearts have grown cold, it's often related to our view of God Again, as a master. Now, of course, God is a judge. God, in a very real sense, is a master. But when one has, has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you're forgiven of all your sins and you're adopted into the family. And you can relate to God as Father now. But also another telltale sign of waning love and desire for the Father is doubts concerning the goodness of God. This sometimes happens when you're going through trials and difficulties in your life. When you're going through hardship in your life. You you begin to think that God has it out for you. That God's trying to stick it to you to get even with you. That God is punishing you. We see this perspective even with Job's friends. Remember in the opening pages of the book of Job, Job begins to experience tremendous suffering and difficulty in his life as as all of his assets are stolen and, and, and he loses his ten children through this storm that the roof collapses on his family. <clears throat> and it's in the midst of that that his friends begin to tell Job, Job, there must be some kind of sin in your life. God must have it out for you. Trying to get Job to doubt God's goodness. We see this perspective as well with even the disciples in John chapter 9 as they come across that man who was born blind. And they ask Jesus the question, as they look at this man and this suffering that he has endured his entire life, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? (coughs) Clearly, This man's suffering must be directly related to somebody's sin. And you remember Jesus' response was, neither was it that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be manifest in him. It wasn't that reason. But you see, the disciples' view of God was Hard thoughts of God, doubting his goodness, doubting his kindness. Again, Octavius Winslow says, the mark of a vigorous love to God is when the soul justifies God in all of his wise and gracious dealings with it. Rebels not, murmur not, repines not, but meekly and silently acquiesces in the dispensations, be it ever so trying. What Winslow is saying there is is that when one is going through trial and difficulty, when, when, when you have the right view of God, your mouth closes. You do not accuse God of injustice, of wrongdoing. You don't doubt his goodness. But the heart that has grown cold towards God or distant towards God doesn't see God clearly and may have hard thoughts of God. Another caution is lacking a close and tender walk with the Lord. 
Again, when your heart loves someone, you want to please that person. You don't want to unnecessarily offend that person. One's relationship to sin is inseparable to their relationship with God because if you love God, then, then you do not do that. You, you do not want to do that which is an offense to Him. You do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed. And so the heart that is mature and healthy in the relationship with the Lord, when, when you see sin, your, your heart grieves. You're broken and, and you want to confess that to the Lord and, and walk closely with your God. Winslow says, when a believer walks in holy circumspection, in uprightness, integrity, close vigilance and prayerfulness before God, when with family tenderness he trembles to offend his father, his God, his best friend. But another caution is lack of passion for the advancement of his cause. You see, when you love somebody, you want what they want. You delight in their dreams and aspirations and their goals. When the heart loves the Lord, the heart that loves the Lord aligns their heart with his great purposes, his great aims. Well, what is God's great aim? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It's that basic catechism that you may teach your children. Why did God create you and all things? For his glory. And when the heart is aligned with, with loving God, then the heart will, will also be aligned with his great mission to glorify his name through the building up of believers and through his message coming to this lost and dying world. That this God who delights to glorify himself through the salvation of sinners. I mean, wasn't this the great mission of the Lord Jesus? Isn't this what the angel Gabriel said to Joseph? Joseph, call him Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Isn't this what Jesus himself said in, in, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Isn't this what the apostles held up as Jesus' mission in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15? Here's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. God's great mission is to glorify himself through the salvation of sinners. And a sign of good health and love for the Lord is you're joining in that mission. And so it might be good to pause and ask yourself, when's the last time you spoke the gospel to somebody? When's the last time you've had the joy of seeing a friend or family member who you spoke the gospel to getting baptized? When's the last time you were obedient to Jesus' commission to make disciples of all the nations? And if not, then could it be that our love for the Lord has gone weak? We, we don't earnestly desire God to be glorified in the salvation of sinners. We've kind of grown content with our own comfort. Or maybe, maybe the, the uh, uh, appeasing of man and love for acceptance 
by others has eclipsed our love and passion for the glory of God? Those are some of the cautions. And friend, if you're sitting here this morning and and you have no concern for the lost, you have no love for the Lord, you only have hard thoughts of God as a master, you've never had a love for the Lord, then, then friend, you have not yet been born again. If that's never existed in your life, you've not yet experience the reviving work of the Holy Spirit of God who infuses a love for the Lord in the heart of the believer. And you are still dead in trespasses and sins and you need to be made alive. But I have good news for you this morning. The Lord Jesus came for people just like you. And if you confess that to him, if you acknowledge, Lord, I look at my life and I love a lot of things in life. I, I love pizza, I love pancakes, I love friends, I love video games, but, but I don't love you. I've never loved you. Not with any kind of heartfelt devotion. And yet, Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of our being, all the time. If you come to him confessing that, saying, Lord, my heart's dead as a doornail. Forgive me. Make me alive. And you trust in the Lord Jesus and, and you see the wonder of his saving love towards you, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Turn to him and let your heart be made alive by him. And then you'll begin that walk with him, that walk of love with him. So those are some of the cautions. Now let's move on to the causes of declining love. In the life of the believer, I think one of the greatest causes of declining love is that that which competes for your love for God. You see, everybody loves. It's impossible not to love. And when our love for something other than Jesus begins to eclipse our love for Jesus, then it will choke out our love for Jesus. The Apostle John touches on this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. It says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So John tells us that there's two loves. There's love for God and there's love for the world. And love for the world here in this context is that world system of unbelief and ideas, that that world system of rebellion against God. When your heart loves that system and all that is in that system, the lust of the flesh, sinful desires, the lust of the eyes, the covetousness, the greed, the boastful pride of life, the going after all you can while you can. He says when that has taken hold of your heart, there is no love for God. Or how about James 4.4? James says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We see this often in, with believers in the scriptures. 
when something begins to pull upon their heart, it comes and chokes out their love for the Lord. Remember Lot in the book of Genesis, Abraham's nephew? He had a choice where he could dwell, either in the promised land or outside the promised land in a very economically prosperous city on the plain, those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot chose to dwell in that economically prosperous plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he did well. He was even evidently able to elevate himself to some positions at the city gate. But before long, his heart was entangled with love of this world. His heart was enraptured with the love of stuff. And you remember when those angels came to his family and told him that God was going to begin to pour out his fiery wrath upon the city, Moses records that Lot hesitated. You remember that? He, as the King James says, he lingered. And you remember even when, when, when he began to be convinced that he needed to leave the city and he, he warned his future sons-in-laws about God's judgment coming, do you remember how they responded? You, you must be kidding, right? This is a joke, right? Evidently, Lot never had any serious conversations with his future sons-in-law about the things of the Lord. He evidently joked around with them but never had an honest conversation about the state of their souls. You see, Lot's heart, his love for stuff, had competed with his love for the Lord so much that he almost was consumed in the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah with the rest of the city. And the Lord Jesus himself, remember in, in, in the context of Luke chapter 19, he says, remember Lot's wife, whose heart evidently had, was so in love with Sodom that you could take Mrs. Lot out of Sodom, but you couldn't take Sodom out of her heart because she turned back and became a pillar of salt. Friend, disentangle your heart from anything that would compete with your love for Christ. And sometimes it can even be good things, not necessarily inherently evil things, but it can choke out your love for Christ. You think of the parable of the soils, that, that, that rocky soil in which, which the seed falls and it, and it seems to spring up and joy over it, but, but then you remember it's the affliction comes and chokes it out. Or I'm sorry, the, the affliction of the sun and its rays come and beat down. So it evidently is a love of comfort. Love of approval because persecution as well could choke out that seed. Or how about the, the, the thorny soil, the the cares of this world, the love of riches. And then he just says, the desire for other things comes and chokes out the word. Those are some things that will compete for your love for Christ. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. William Cooper, the 18th century hymn writer, poet, he wrote this, How eager are my thoughts to roam, 
in quest of what they love. But ah, when duty calls them home, how heavily they move. Oh, cleanse me in a Savior's blood. Transform me by thy power and make me thy beloved abode and let me roam no more. A poem was a prayer to God. God, let not my heart roam in love towards other stuff than you. Again, Winslow says, an idolatrous and unsanctified attachment to the creation has again and again crucified love to Christ in the heart upon the same principle that no man can love the world and God with supreme and kindred affection so that no man can give to Christ and the creation the same intensity of regard. That's one potential cause that is choking on your love for Christ. Another one is misinterpreting God's discipline for his judgment. And this is very similar to what we talked about before as far as having hard thoughts of God. Uh, if, if you can turn there quickly, turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 4 through 9. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 12 verses 4 through 9. He says, have you... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My beloved, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? You see what the author of Hebrews is writing to his audience there is that God disciplines those not whom he hates, but those whom he loves. And, and, and again, sometimes when the Christian is going through difficulty and trial, they misinterpret God's providential dealings with them. They see it not as God's firm hand of discipline, but of his rod of punishment. And begin to have hard thoughts of God. Again, Winslow says, Dear reader, why has God been disciplining you as it may be he has? Why has he removed your idols, crumbled into dust your piece of clay, and blown it witheringly upon your beautiful flower? Why? Because he hates idolatry. See, often that's what's going on when we encounter trials and difficulties in life. God is taking his boot to our idols. Why? Because he loves us and he knows what, what's best for us is for our heart to be fully devoted to him. And when he kicks out those idols, when he begins to crush our love of comfort or crush our approval of man or crush our love of respect, He's doing it not because he hates us, but because he loves us. The psalmist writes in Psalm 84, 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God's not withholding anything good from you. Or how about Romans 8, 28? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God's working whatever trials and difficulty he's bringing about in your life to prune you. How about that? 
John 15, the father is the vine dresser. He's the pruner, right? I've never been very good at gardening. But I know enough to know that there are some plants that need to be cut. And sometimes they need to be whittled down till it looks like they're just about dead. And that's for the purpose of them growing back that much more robust and full. Remember Mr. Miyagi's bonsai trees? He was always working on. God prunes us. But he prunes us not as a lumberjack cutting us down, but as a careful gardener because he knows what's best. We see this in the life of Joseph, right? Joseph was able to interpret all the hardship that he endured, whether it was the hatred and jealousy that he experienced from his own brothers kidnapping him, selling him into slavery, the unjust and illegitimate false accusation of Mrs. Potiphar accusing him of rape. And and he was able to look at all these circumstances and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He saw God as his father who was working all these tragic circumstances in his life as a wonderful tapestry to weave this beautiful garment of love for him. It was goodness that sent those trials in Joseph's life because it was from the Father in heaven. Friend, God has uniquely and wonderfully crafted whatever trials you are going through in your life as a love gift for you. And oh, he knows that they hurt. He knows that they're painful, but he also knows the outcome of it will be greater harvest of righteousness in your life. But if instead you interpret it as, God, you're a big meanie. I deserve better than this. It's going to, Cut the throat of your love for him. It's believing a lie. It's believing the lie that the devil fed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God's a big meanie. He's not for you. He's against you. It's a satanic lie. And he knows it. And he wants you to believe it. Don't believe it, my friend. So what are some cures to this Dwindling and declining love. I told you we'd get to Hosea. That was all the introduction. <laughs> Let's go to Hosea chapter 14. Remember the context of the book of Hosea. This minor prophet. Israel had been backsliding. Israel had been wandering. Israel had been, dare I say, to use the language of the Bible, Israel had abandoned her her love and devotion to her husband, God, and was whoring around. But God wasn't through with her. God would use this prophet as an illustration of his love for Israel. And in the, the last chapter of this book, God gives them some tremendous counsel some tremendous counsel to turn back to him. In in Hosea chapter 14 in, in verse one, return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God, Yahweh your covenant God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to Yahweh. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. The first counsel God gives to them is to examine their own hearts and to confess to him. God's saying, this is what you should say. Take away all my iniquity. Forgive all my sin. Receive me that I may present the sacrifice of my lips to you. 
Examine your own heart, my friend. Come to God broken in spirit. Confess to him, God, I love you, but I don't love you as I ought to. Lord, I know that my, my love for you is, is being eclipsed by this thing. Lord, forgive me of that thing. I need you to forgive me. Proverbs 28, verse 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will find mercy, compassion. Stop running from God, my friend. Turn back to him. Own up to your weak lack of love for him. Winslow says, and should the humiliating truth force itself upon us, I am not as I once was. My soul has lost ground. My spirituality of mind has decayed. I've lost the fervor of my first love. I've slackened in the heavenly race. Jesus is not as he once was. Then honestly and humbly confess it before God. Tell on yourself to him. Secondly, Trace out and crucify that root cause. Trace out and crucify that root cause. Look in Hosea. Notice what the prophet Hosea says. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. That imagery, you're tripping, you're falling. You're falling, why? Because of your iniquity. He's putting his finger on the specific root cause of their infidelities towards him. And notice as the chapter unfolds, drop your eyes down to verse 3. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. You see, they're putting their finger on, or God wants them to put their finger on, the root cause, namely their idolatries. They were putting their confidence in these unholy alliances to protect them. They're saying, well, if we just make an alliance with Assyria and maybe, you know, bow a little bit to their God, then, then, then all of our bases are covered. Little bit of homage to Yahweh, little bit of homage to the gods of Assyria, and, and, and our bases will be covered. And they say, no, no. We, we need to own up to that and say, no. We cannot be devoted to God and these other idols. Hosea verse 14, verses 8 and 9. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him discern these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Again, the counsel here is clear. I am good. I am for your good. You're whoring after these other gods. Turn back to me. And it's the same counsel for us. When our hearts are devoted to something that is not God, when, our, when we're in this secret love affair with sin, it chokes out our love for the Lord and it's not for our good. And God says, no, no, you need to divorce that and you need to come back to me. You need to cut off that relationship and you need to come back to me. And friend, you, I can't answer it for you. You know what's in your heart. You know what's competing for your love of Christ. You know what besetting sin is choking out your love for Christ. And you need to have honest dealings with God. It's just like cancer. I can't believe how many dear friends of mine these days are getting diagnosed with cancer. Young people. And it's always the, the, the approach of medicine, modern medicine, is always the same. Got to get the cancer out. Got to cut it out. Need to put some chemotherapy that's going to kill a lot of other cells, but at least it's going to kill that. Whatever competes for your love for Christ is a cancer, 
needs to be cut out. God's jealous for your heart. But not only confess, not only cut out the cancer, but thirdly, contemplate the grace and love of God. Oh, the grace and love of God. God is not through with you, my friend. God is not done with you. Look at Israel here. Contemplate his initiating love, his initiating grace. I mean, friend, think of the context of this book. I told you, God the Almighty is writing through the prophet Hosea. In the beginning of the book, in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he gives instructions to Hosea. It says, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so he went, that is he being Hosea, took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. God told Hosea to go marry a hooker. Go marry a woman of harlotry. Because this was an example of God's relationship with Israel. God was married to a very unfaithful woman. And yet God initiated that relationship. He's the one who came to Abraham. He's the one who plucked the Hebrews out of Egypt. He's the one who planted them in the promised land. He's the one who sent them judge after judge throughout the book of Judges. He's the one who appointed a king over them named David. He's the one who wasn't going to give up on them. He initiated it. But Hosea gets even more crazy because Hosea is now in marriage with Gomer. John MacArthur said that was Hosea's first mistake. He married a woman named Gomer. In case you're having a daughter and thinking of names, you might want to scratch that one off the list. But in chapter 3, It says, then Yahweh said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her companion and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn after other gods and love raisin cakes. God tells Hosea, go get your wife. His wife, who he had married and had children with, forsook him. And he said, go get her. And you know where he finds her? He finds her at the slave market. She's being auctioned off. She's being sold as a sex slave. In verse 2, Hosea says, so I bargained for her, for myself, for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. Friend, this is how God describes his relationship with us. As a faithful husband who goes after his wife. It's an initiating love. It's a persevering love. God has seen your whorings around. God has seen your harlotries, and he wants your heart, and he comes to you this morning, says, come back to me. Come back to me. And even wonder of wonders, he has purchased you at the auction block. He has taken all of your debt and all that you have accumulated so that you have been prostituting your body, he's taken that debt upon himself and he has bought you back for himself. He wants you this morning. 
He wants all of you, not part of you, not some of you, not 90% of you. He wants your heart this morning. And he will be merciful and forgive you of all your infidelities and he will take you back. First John says, he lo- we love because why? He first loved us. In Hosea 14, verse 3 and 4, he says, I will heal their apostasy. Verse 4, I will heal their turning away from me. King James, I will heal their backslidings. It's God who's going to do this. And so you need to lean into his initiating grace, lean into his reviving grace. He's the one who will heal. He is the one who will restore. You also need to lean into his justifying grace. Notice in verse four, I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. Wonder of wonder, as new covenant believers, we can see how God does this on this side of the cross because it's Jesus himself who's the propitiation for our sins. He has absorbed all the Father's wrath. He is forgiven. He justifies. He blankets all of our sins and infidelities. He accepts us. Lean into that, my friend. Lean into that. But also his adopting grace. Notice the end of verse 3. For in you the orphan finds compassion. In you the orphan finds compassion. We say, well, are we God's bride or are we his child? (laughs) Yes. We're the son of the father and we are the bride of Christ. It's very Trinitarian. So, not only confess, crucify, contemplate the grace and love of God that's found in the gospel, but lastly, cry out to God. He is the one who will do this. Notice What he summons Israel to do in verse two, say to him, forgive all our iniquity, take what is good, or as the New American Standard translates it, to accept us, to accept us. Cry out to him for him to revive your heart, for him to heal your backslidings. Philippians chapter one and verse nine, Paul prays for the church in Philippi. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more. He prays that their love would grow. What does that tell you? That God himself is the source of our love for him and our love for others. And so you need to cry out to him. You need to earnestly plead with him. You need to have wrestlings with him. And if you do so, my friend, I believe you'll be back on the path of a growing and abounding love for him. Let me close with this story of a woman named Elizabeth Prentice. She was the wife of a Presbyterian pastor. She was the author of several familiar hymns. She was described by her friends as a very, quote, a very bright-eyed little woman with a keen sense of humor who cared more to shine in her own happy household than in a wide circle of society. Although she was strong in spirit, she was very frail in body. Throughout her life, she was almost an invalid, scarcely knowing a free moment of pain. But it was in a time of great tragedy 
she lost her two children. She buried her two boys that she would write in her diary, empty hands, worn out, exhausted body, and unutterable longings to flee from a world that has so many sharp experiences. But it was during that same period of heavy sorrow and grief that Elizabeth Prentice began meditating upon the story of Jacob in the Old Testament. She noted how God had met him in a very special way during his moments of sorrow and need. And she prayed that she too would have such a similar experience. And while she was meditating and praying one evening, these words came to her that she put pen to paper and wrote, More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. Then the last verse. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be, my, this be the parting cry my heart shall praise. This still its prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. Let's pray.